Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Friday, April 8th installment of the Silicon Insider, the only uncensored look at life and business in the Valley. We're video, folks. Uh, we're trying out new microphones. Uh, we're in separate rooms instead of, you know, at one point at the beginning of this podcast, we actually recorded in the two front seats of a pickup truck. So we're, we're upgrading. We're moving up again. My name is Mike Malone, and I'm here with our special contributor, Scott Budman, technology reporter for NBC Bay Area. Our producer is Jordan Henderson, who's sitting right over there. Our East Coast correspondent is Bob Grove. And our host, as always, is the Silicon Valley Business Journal. Okay, so the talk of the Silicon Valley this week, Scott, I mean, everybody's talking about it. Elon Musk. Can this guy stay in the news or what? I mean, <laughs> yeah, it's it's true. Further proof that it's his world and we're pretty much just living in it. Pretty much just living in it. And now we're going to be we're going to be talking and communicating in it. Right. So how much did he spend for for Twitter for his uh, his piece of Twitter? He has what, nine percent? Yeah, 10%? I think he spent something like two point nine billion dollars to acquire nine percent of Twitter. That's copy money for his net worth right now. Right. Uh, and apparently he did it over quite a period of time, buying up a whole bunch of shares. This was uh, not a sudden takeover, but um, kind of but a takeover. A, nonetheless. a surreptitious takeover, which there's some complaints about that, that he hit his acquisition. Yeah. Right. That the SEC didn't know as he was compiling shares, uh, which is a very Elon Musk thing to do, uh, to go against the SEC. And, um, you know, what can you say? He's uh, he's facing challenges every step of the way but smiling and dominating the whole time oh yeah and scared the hell out of everybody at twitter i guess they're all up in arms now that he's going to stop them from uh, censoring people they don't like well you know part of this before he revealed his stake in twitter was musk being musk uh saying things like you know right is twitter censoring people do we need uh, to do this better? Do we need a different social network? And then, you know, as he accumulated the shares, the polls got to be, do we need an edit button and things like that? He's clearly toying with people um, in the way that only a billionaire can do. And he even got away with putting a picture of Trudeau with Hitler, didn't he, at one point back there? Right. That was before he owned his stake. Um, I mean, but, but he's right. I mean, nightmare in some respects. Very much so. He's, he's, a communicator. He's also a troll. Um, and I imagine, like you say, there are a lot of people inside Twitter um, who are nervous about what Musk does with this now largest stake in the company. I know uh, the media is a little concerned, too. I, I, MSNBC, they had a guest on and said, oh, he just he's longing for the old apartheid days in South Africa. Uh, they they, meet, they call him a racist within like 24 hours of his taking over Twitter. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know about that. I, I think uh, this shows not only Musk's uh, love of the theatrical, gigantic, throw the money around um, gesture, but also um, the press's histrionic reaction to what Musk does, which I think is part of the reason he does these things. Yeah. Um, and so it's almost like if someone six weeks ago had said, hey, let's pretend Elon Musk uh, in our fan fiction becomes the largest shareholder in Twitter, you could sort of predict the next four things that happened with the press and with Twitter itself. And um, I'm sure there's more to come with perhaps resignations, with you know reaction from the other 
sort of more right-wing uh, social media networks. You know, th- this is all sort of predictable, to be honest. Well, you know, I've read for years, if, if you don't, if you're one of these rich guys and you don't like the situation in the media, go buy a piece of the media. So now we have Bezos with the Washington Post, you know, we have Elon at Twitter. Uh, interesting. You know? Right. Uh, you know, Benioff bought a magazine. And what's interesting right. here is you have these billionaires buying old school media and Musk sort of macheted through all that and said, I'm not going to buy a newspaper or a magazine. I'm going to buy the most modern, um, relevant media source out there, which is Twitter. Uh, well, let's see what I'll be very curious what he does, because, you know, we've talked many times about the disconnect between Elon Musk, the person who's a pretty shy, you know, almost antisocial guy. And then these massive moves that just capture the imagination of the world. Um, It'll be interesting to see what he does with this. Uh, Is he going to fire all of the censors? Is he going to replace them? Is he going to open? He's always been a huge free speech advocate is he going to open twitter up to anything and are we going to get a test case now of what happens when it's just a wide open uh communications platform where we got all the crazies coming on and conspiracy nuts and all of that i mean it's a, it's a legitimate question there's going to be a thesis done on what super super rich people have done when purchasing companies i mean back in the day Warren Buffett would buy huge shares of Coca-Cola, Dairy Queen, you know, insurance companies, railroads, and sort of back off as a, a you know, sort of a quiet leader. He recently bought a big, big stake in of all companies, HP. We're going to talk he, about that in a minute. Yeah. Okay. But, um, you know, the more modern way is, as we said, you know, the Jeff Bezos's and the Mark Benioff's buying media companies um, and making their presence known, but not with all that much uh, authority or noise. Um, and it would be surprising knowing Elon Musk's history, if he was sort of that benevolent sit in the back of the shareholder kind of meeting. Yeah, that's not going to happen. <laughs> right. And therefore, a lot of speculation on what is Twitter going to do and what is Musk going to do with Twitter. And uh, I mean, that's, you know, it's all happening right now. And, and I mean, he could become be Bezos like- and, and just kind of let the thing run itself. But he could also become William Randolph Hearst, you know, you know starting wars and, <laughs> every, you know, everything else. We'll see. Right. All right. Uh, Speaking of social media and free speech, Pinterest has said it will now prohibit users from spreading misinformation about climate change. Okay. well, I have a couple questions there. The big one is that's still being argued. I mean, the details are being argued. You know, climate change is pretty much accepted now around the world, but the actual details, the numbers the percentage change in you know degrees per year. We had the hockey stick model, but that's now in disrepute. We had we had some questions about the numbers coming out of the UK a few years ago. How are they going to be able to determine what actually constitutes misinformation about climate change? Right, and that's a great question. Um, you know, especially for a Pinterest, which is not where you'd think uh, people are spreading as much you know misinformation as opposed yeah. to say a Facebook or a a TikTok, but um, but apparently, you know, a lot of people use Pinterest not just for sort of aspirational photos and, and things like that, but for uh, a social network. And I've been back and forth with the people of Pinterest, you know, trying to get into the office to watch this. Honestly, part of the problem with that is 
they haven't brought a lot of people back to the office yet. So I have a feeling this takes a while to get up and running. But um, I think, you know, your concerns about what is climate change and what is misinformation are valid. But I think you can recognize misinformation, even if we don't have all the information, if that makes sense. I mean, yeah, yeah. you know, people saying this is a, a Chinese hoax, for instance, uh, to quote our former president, um, that's the kind of thing that I think they want to get rid of to forward the dialogue so that we can learn more about what's going on and what we can be doing to hopefully slow, um, you know, the, the process of, of dangerous climate change. But uh, right, I, I'm as interested in anyone. Let's see if I come, uh, I come up with a fake chart with fake numbers. Are yes. they going to vet that chart to determine I think so. That? I think so. Uh, you know, I think if... Um, this is so know, weird for Pinterest. I think a Pinterest is, oh, here's here's my collection of World War One war bond posters, you know, pictures of all of those. I mean, not climatology and debates on, you know, that kind of thing, CO2 levels. Right. And, and I wonder if a company like Pinterest doing this is saying one of the reasons we want to get rid of this misinformation is A, because it's misinformation. We don't want to be known, you know, lumped in with the other social networks that are, are dealing with this on a huge level. Um, but because Pinterest wants to be Pinterest, they want you to see, well, for you, it's World War One bonds for the more <laughs> modern user. It's, you know, <laughs> wedding dresses or couches or whatever. But, um, you know, this is something that they want to screen out because that noise is really getting in the way of a lot of positive discourse. And in the case of Pinterest, commerce. And uh, this is really it, it a sounds like a mess. for a lot I mean, of social sounds, media companies. It sounds like the best solution is just not carry any of that stuff, you know, just stick to the wedding dresses and the couches and the World War I bond posters. But as you know, it's hard to do anything on social media without a few comments in yeah. things taking a turn to either the left or the right or it whatever. Always, it always bleeds in. Right, exactly. And if you're Facebook, for some reason, you still thrive on that. But if you're Pinterest, it probably gets in the way of what you're trying to do as a company and have been doing pretty successfully so far. Yeah, I can, I can see them at Pinterest just panicking. You know, they're, they're looking at color swatches photos and all of a sudden there's a debate about, you know, CO2 levels at the North Pole. I mean, that, they've got it. I have a different image of those guys, people that work there. You know, they, they, they're, they have scrapbooks, <laughs> you know, and, right. and that sort of thing. Not, not, you know, battles over technical details and science. Right. But I will be following up on this because this is a, you know, it's a Silicon Valley company that's, sure. that's stepping out and saying, specifically, we're going to target climate change misinformation. That's very interesting. And uh, like you, I'm curious what the misinformation is, as I whack the mic, and um, how they're going to really specifically fight it. Do they use algorithms? Do they use AI? Do they have actual people that are watching these things? Um, this could be a test case for the other larger social networks. Yeah. Well, I'm interested in the specificity, specificity too. This is a shakedown run, folks. We have what we have rattling microphones and I can't talk. Uh, are they going to then, are they going to have trans debates? Are they going to have Ukrainian war debates? I mean, is this the future of Pinterest? We'll see. Um, I no, I mean, right. But it's, it's certainly the future and the present of social media, yeah. which is why these companies are struggling with misinformation and why you have other companies that are saying, hey, we're all about free speech, say whatever you want. And, you know, somewhere in between you have Truth social, you know, which is and trying to get Elon off the comes ground. Comes in with that caterpillar tractor, just 
blows up everything. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. It's going to be an interesting year. Okay. The Bal- Sonny Balwani trial. Your life in the last year has been courtrooms. Yes. Largely, uh, yes. And this one isn't getting a lot of coverage. No, there have been many days where I found myself as the only, uh, you know, at least TV journalist, not to mention a couple of days as the only reporter in the courtroom. And, you know, it's, it's, I can wrap this up so far as saying it's the same playbook. Yeah. Because these, these cases are brought by the prosecution and the prosecution succeeded in, um, you know, four guilty counts against Elizabeth Holmes, who was clearly the biggest fish. Right. Uh, Sonny Balwani, her partner, um, former partner at Theranos and the chief operating officer. Um, same playbook. And it, uh, you know, right down to recently, we saw some text messages. And that was a revelation in the first case. And yeah. now we're seeing text messages used slightly differently, not so much to establish a relationship between the two. But we have Balwani, who just, I guess, like many men with some power and money couldn't help texting, I'm running this company. And that's what the entire case hinges on, was yeah. he also defrauding yeah, he investors. regret that now, you know. Right. The entire defense seems to be Balwani was just a shareholder. He was on the sidelines answering. Oh, uh, yeah. He just walked in every once in a while, you know, got a drink right. of water and left. We're yeah. barely three weeks in. We have a text message where he's saying, I'm running this company. So, you know, again, I'm no lawyer and, and, uh, it just that got a couple of gasps from those of us. Is who were. this like Rashomon to you, where an event has occurred and you're seeing it from all these different perspectives, from the same data, but it's all being presented and slanted in different directions? Yes, and and actually, and and again, I I I haven't covered court much um, previous to the Elizabeth Holmes trial. Period. But isn't that kind of what a trial is—a Rashomon yeah. style? Everyone takes the stand. And each witness says, you know, what they saw from their perspective. That's a perfect way of saying it. Um, I may be drastically simplifying this and making my lawyer friends cringe, and I apologize, but that is sort of what we're seeing. Now we're just seeing it again with the same witnesses, but it has been a little awkward for some of them. Um, If you believe the Bad Bloods and the, you know, the podcasts, Sonny Balwani was cast as quite the heavy. And so to see some of these former employees facing him in a courtroom. It was quite emotional for them and possibly disturbing if what those books and documentaries said was true, that he was really the heavy in the, uh, in the office. It's hard to believe he can get out of this one intact. You know, there's so much out there. Right. I mean, the, um, the I mean obviously in job ahead of him. Right. It's going to be interesting. And do they have him testify, um, you know, the, the big controversy was in the Holmes case was having her testify. And although ultimately she was found guilty on four counts, um, she was very good on the stand, which we all expected. She was very charismatic and all that stuff. Um, we don't know if Balwani is that way. And from all the stories told about him, he's not. So do you take that risk and put him on the stand when it really didn't work uh, when the client was famously um, charming and charismatic and, and yeah. a good speaker. Who knows? Well, you and I have seen a million of these guys around the Valley over the years, you know, these alpha guys that are just part of their power comes from diminishing the people around them, you know? And- right. And, and again, according to the reporting done earlier, uh, that is what Balwani did. And I and it's think it's that's- hard to make him into a choir boy. Right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, this was crazy news. Berkshire Hathaway 
has has bought a one eleven percent stake in of all places. I mean, Warren Buffett is buying eleven percent stake in Hewlett Packard. This is like the the only good news Hewlett Packard has had in like ten years. I mean, ever since Carly got there and then heard, HP has been essentially become a dead story and been you know dismembered to the point that Reuters had to say, oh, by the way, it's HP Inc, not HP, uh, whatever it is now. Uh, what is it, HP? Well, it's HWP, so they're Enterprise. Remember they separated H- into the- yeah. HP Enterprise, HP Inc. And this is, this, is the, this is the original Bill and Dave course company, HP Inc. Why would Buffett buy 11% of that company? You know, it's 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 hard to say because it's HP, but because it's Warren Buffett, remember he has been, I mean, if you can use the word dabbling with the kind of money that guy spends, he has sure. been dabbling in technology. He got very interested in Apple. Right. Um, and he he killed it with Apple. Right. Right. But he right. but he also did IBM, which looks a lot more in those days, looks a lot more like HP now. And right. he that was a wash. He barely broke even on that one. Right. And yet his whole thing seems to be finding assets he can bring more value out of. And obviously, HP resembles more, you know, a railroad or an insurance company at this point than Apple. Um, but that is his his strength. Um, you know, the and Apple it, thing, it, if you look at it, was kind of an outlier for Warren Buffett. Yeah. And, you know, there's kind of the, the uncertainty principle here that when he shows up, he actually, his presence adds value. So HP stock just jumped. It's now, uh, as the company is what? $43 billion now. HP hasn't seen that side of $40 billion in a long time. You know, it's kind of interesting. HP's back in the story of Silicon Valley and all that. Um, a little I bit. Mean, I think this actually brings Warren Buffett back into the Silicon Valley in a yes. fairly safe way. HP is not going to go away. I mean, it was threatened with that perhaps at some point, but they're not going to go away. And um, they're not a stock, even like Apple, that moves up and down all that big on on any given day. So it's a way for him to get back into Silicon Valley, perhaps a little more safely. And as is his way, um, boringly, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Midwestern. Well put. You know, what a sad trajectory HP has had. I mean... I, I'm I'm old enough, and I started young enough that I was actually at HP when Bill and Dave were at the very end of their career, the most innovative company in the world at the time. You know, the Apple of its era. I wrote a whole book saying, you know, the world's greatest company, which you know you can make a good argument it was in the '50s and, and '60s and early '70s. But then this succession of people afterwards, and watching this mighty company just become increasingly become a cash cow, become irrelevant, you know, and now you're sort of surprised. It's like, oh, HP's in the news, you know, what happened? And then to see this kind of, it becomes a financial play. It's no longer a technical play. You know, it's, it's, it's a great story, but it, you know, like a lot of great stories of heroes, it ends in tragedy, you know, and it's not a tragedy yet, but all those loyal HPers that went back to the HP way, 
this is, you know, this is kind of sad to watch this. Uh, well, plus, you know, it's been a couple of decades where if you lived here in, in the Bay Area, specifically Silicon Valley enough, you'd run into former employees of different companies. If they worked at Apple, they have great stories to tell because they made a lot of money and they feel good about it. Um, you know, another company that, that I think fits that bill of longevity and people coming in and out would be, say, Applied Materials. You run into people right. that were at Applied Materials. They have good stories to tell. They're proud of their products. They made a lot of money. For the past couple of decades, if you ran into former HP workers, they were likely laid off. Yes. And they likely didn't make all that money unless they held their stock from way back in the day. And so you get that sort of narrative. And, and again, I trust your narrative more than mine as someone who you know lived through that. But just the people I talk to, if it's an HP former employee, they were laid off. And so they're not telling you happy stories. Oh, it's worse than that. It was my father and my grandfather worked at HP. They bled HP blue. We used to go to the, you know, the HP's private park up there, little basin in the mountains. And we had the beer bus. And now they're, they're sad. It's like they've lost a, they've lost a family member, you know, and it's heartbreaking. So anyway, good luck, HP. You know, I, I would love to see HP come back, but yeah, I, I, I'm wondering if Buffett's got himself another IBM on his hands, but we'll see. As HP's got some extra money now, maybe they'll actually invest it in innovation again. Uh, sad stuff. Okay, this comes from Jordan, who's, like I said, he's right here watching me. Um, why security cameras? Turns out... They've not only been compromised, they, they have, you know, there's a million hacks now on them, but they hid that information from the public. They said, oh, we had to research it more, we had to investigate and all that. And they took, what, three years to finally let the world know, oh, hey, you can't trust your security cameras. Uh, that's messy, that's ugly, that's a, that's a, that's a boardroom decision. That's, that's a Firestone 500 boardroom decision. Like if we pretend it didn't happen, let's come out with new products and just obsolete that nasty one as quick as possible. And nobody will notice. Well, they've noticed now. And there's a mess out there. What do you think? I agree with you. You know, anything in your home that runs on the internet is at risk. And I'm amazed at how much the trend is put everything on the internet your stove now, your refrigerator. But as risky as that is, um, your camera is even more risky for obvious reasons. Yeah. You know, there's video of you and your home and your, your private moments, your family. Um, and so that in itself is a category that is dangerous. But then to hide this information is criminal, I believe. I and believe I think that's why they're in the news. Um, and, you know, you, you just can't get away with it. I realize they might not have been a public company or whatever, but at some point, trust just completely disappears. Well, there's, a, there's a duty to their customers. Right. And, 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 and that's, that's, I think, the story. It's, it's the word security, you know, without sitting on your product. Yeah. You expect to be made more secure by purchasing that item and using it, not becoming less secure. Right. And this, I think, goes to the whole thing. And, and I've been kind of on a soapbox about these things, you know, your Amazon Echoes or your Ring doorbells or your Google, you know, home assistants. They're recording you folks. You have to go into these things saying they're recording me and other people are hearing me. And if you install a camera, they're looking at me and other people are seeing me. If you're comfortable with those two sentences, okay, move forward. But 
really give that some thought, especially if you have, I don't know, anything personal in your house or, or family that might not want to be seen or heard by others, because we know this is how these things work. Um, and uh, companies have been, even the big guys have been very slow to admit, yeah, okay, we do record everything, but they eventually come around to it. And this company was, I think, criminally slow. And, um, you know, I, I, I hope they pay some sort of a price because there has to be a disincentive for companies right. to keep these things secret. And for companies, they, they need, when they sit down at that board meeting and they're weighing things, on this side has to be a, a sizable punishment to defer them from doing the other thing, which is not telling anybody and keeping it safe. Exactly. Uh, okay, um, real quick. Bay Area housing sales are slowing, but prices are going up. That's an interesting non-economic model. That equation doesn't seem like supply and demand is working quite properly. Well, except there is, right, less supply. And part of that is a little bit less demand. Interest rates are going up. I mean, granted, you know, they're going up to woo near 5%, but that's still high for an entire generation um, yeah, of, of interest rates. Two billion bucks on the house. Right, two that too. Um, I mean, when I talk about- 5% is a sizable sum of money. Oh, no, no, no doubt. Look, when I, uh, you know, when I talk about uh, this with my parents, they laugh at me when I was like, well, we got it down to three and three quarters and- but then it went up to four, you know, and they're saying, okay, we bought a house at 19% interest. So ha ha, you know, yeah. and the you're, prices you're, were different. And I had the same world. experience as your parents. I remember as a kid, 20%. Yeah. Yeah. And that's um, right. But let, let's be honest in these prices going up to near 5% makes a difference. Um, and people are still a little bit gun shy about putting their homes on the market. So if you right. have less uh, supply out there, less chances to buy a home, those who are buying are paying, once again, a super high premium. And so you see the prices go up. I mean, the economic model, such as it is here in the Bay Area, is just extraordinary with where prices are. And I think, you know, according to the experts, they tell me the, the only way out of this is more housing, you know, build more housing um, and not just, you know, Menlo Park Mansion housing. I mean, housing for for real people. That well, yeah, but you know, getting construction loans now are going to get more expensive. And some, I just get the feeling this is out of sync. And at some point, all these different factors, supply, demand, price, interest rates, all of that have to come into some sort of symmetry. And when that happens, everything is going to start shifting really, really fast. And I, I don't know when that's coming, but it might be May, June, when, you know, the people are taking their, taking their kids out of school to move, or it might be uh, early, late August, early September, when people decide if they're going to move to a new location, then they're desperate to get into a home. Yeah, those I think that's be, the, you know, that, those tend to be turning points. Right. And that's a big factor with the Bay Area is will people move, you know, during the pandemic, we actually saw rents in the Bay Area go considerably lower. And we were, you know, leading the league in high rents for a while because people didn't have to live here to do their tech jobs. If people decide they don't have to live here and I don't know, there's too much crime, they're concerned about homelessness, they're concerned about high housing prices and they move, that would make a big difference. But so far it's been enough of a difference in a short period of time to lower rents, but not housing prices or values. So- Well, we I will note one other factor, which is it's 80 degrees right now as we're talking. It's the beginning of, 
April. There is right. still snow on the ground in large portions of the United States. That's why there's always going to be people moving to the Bay Area. You know, no matter how expensive the house prices are, they, you know, when you talk, I talked to a friend the other day, it was, it was 27 below zero in certain parts of Montana, you know? <laughs> no, and there's something to be said. Look, I get it. Um, I was on a, a call with um, a venture capitalist from India yesterday who had literally flown over from India to speak at Stanford. So he's standing on the Stanford campus. It's like 72 degrees. I mean, it's just one of those perfect days. And I said, hey, whoa, you caught us in a heat wave. And he said, a heat wave? <laughs> I'm in a sweater right now. I live in India. This is a beautiful, beautiful day on all, you know, for me. And, and you realize, right, people come here for all sorts of great, beautiful weather reasons. Um, and they stay. And that's, that's why we are where we are. Well, I've been on four plane flights in the last three weeks, three and a half weeks. And they're all full. Uh, people, are, people are getting back out into the world again. Uh, so that that mobility is picking up and that, and moving is part of that mobility at a certain point. So we'll see you next few months. OK, I have a final story just for you. You'll <laughs> love this. You'll it'll, it'll hit home. Uh, the power went out in my neighborhood in Sunnyvale for about an hour and it was a beautiful day. So it wasn't wind. It wasn't rain. It wasn't squirrels, probably. And we didn't know what that came back on. And one of one of my son's friends who lives with his wife down the street, he he called him up and that guy went went looking for where the problem was. It was next to a school down here, four blocks away. Guys from PG&E there. He, and he walked up, he said, what's going on? How can we have the power outage? And the guy said, this neighborhood has too many damn Teslas. And they're starting to suck power off the grid. So we have to beef up the amp, the amperage to this corner of Sunnyvale. And I thought, wow. there's, there's one of those hidden signs. You know, like when you go, like you and I, when you go to a company and it's a startup and they have too much expensive office equipment. Right. You know, that's, a, that's not a good sign. What does it mean when they have to they have to boost the power to a neighborhood because there's too many Teslas in the neighborhood? That's an amazing story. That's wonderful. And uh, right, you know, usually in a neighborhood you get a few Teslas, maybe some EVs. You're thinking, hey, we're doing the right thing. You know, the values are up, and we're fighting climate change. Next thing you know, the power goes out. That's hilarious. <laughs> and we're sucking power out of some distant power plant, right. and they're throwing more coal into the furnace. Oh my gosh! Power to power your Tesla. Oh, oh that hurts to hear. But yeah, uh, that's um, that's the first I've heard of that. But um, woof! If that becomes a, a thing, um, like hey neighbors, don't buy so many EVs. You got to get those gas-powered vehicles. Oh, it just hurts to, to hear that story. Yeah, you used to get those proud looks. Now you get the angry looks from your neighbors. <laughs> Thanks to you, my power is out. <laughs> okay, oh. that's it for now, folks. You can find us on the Silicon Valley Business Journal homepage, as well as on Spotify, Anchor, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, and LinkedIn. And you can see us on YouTube for the first time. Uh, have a great weekend. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye. See you, Scott. Bye-bye.